The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. It's a very special day for a couple reasons. One, it is our first Sunday going to two new service times. You know that. Uh, Some of you, you've been here since 9.30 today. I appreciate you hanging around, coming at the right time. Um, But I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need some help today. Uh, this is the smaller of the two gatherings, and we're still trying to learn what it's going to feel like. Um, the first gathering, you know, some of the early birds showed up. Sometimes you think, you know, like the people that like really, you know, they're really serious, they come early. But I, I disagree because if you come early, you know when you get out. See, this service, it's done when I'm done. <laughs> so everything I didn't get to say in the first service, I might just throw it in, all right? So... That's the rea- So y'all are the real ones because you might, who knows? It might be a two-hour two sermon every week. I don't know what's going to happen. Just joking. Junior Theater will kick me out of here before then. Uh, but this feels, to me, it, it's so weird. I know some of you guys have just joined us. It might feel weird to you to look around and have empty chairs, but it feels pretty normal for me. I just got to think back a few years uh, planting the church. And so uh, we've got some room in here, so you can, you know, some of y'all can get your praise on a little bit better now, right? Got some Holy Spirit calisthenics going on. Uh, we've got some room. We've got some room for inviting our friends and our neighbors and our family members. Also, um, I've, what I found out about myself is I preach differently uh, when there's more people in the room because I don't know what it is, but I do. And so I am giving you a little permission to be a little, maybe, charismatic, all right? If you call, if you, so like my brother Derek that gets to preach up here and he talks to you guys about talking back to him, act like I'm Derek today, all right? Because you guys do really good with that. So feel free to give me a little feedback, a little feedback as I'm going. Uh, if you don't like it, don't give me feedback, but, you know, help me out this, help me out this morning. So, all right, so that's the first thing, new service time. We're going to figure out what it feels like to be uh, two different gatherings and we're, we're, we're going to work our way through it. You notice that we changed our liturgy just a little bit. Well, maybe you notice. Uh, we'll see if we need to keep doing that. We're not 100% sure. But, but the other reason that today is special is because we are beginning a new sermon series and a seven-month study through the book of the Bible titled Colossians. All right? To help us, uh, aid, to kind of aid us in that study, you received the ESV Scripture Journal. And just to clarify... If you want to read the Bible and you want to study the Bible, take one of those. So I know Ben said adults, but teenagers, kids, if you want one, take one. Well, we've got it for you. Now, how, how, would you, how, how should you use this thing? Well, you can use it however you want. What I would recommend is mark it up. Make it your own. Highlight, circle words, uh, underline phrases, use different colors, write in the margins, write in the journal, take notes from the sermon. Any insight that you hear from the sermon, write it in the margin. Um, just mark it up, make it your own. It's one small way that you can get more out of our time together in the new sermon series. Now, to take it to the next level, you could also combine the free gift we gave you as a church last week. 
the Dwell Bible app that actually reads the Bible and it's got music in the background and it's professional and you can listen to four different voices if you want. You could also listen over and over to the book of Colossians. That's what I'm doing. Uh, trying to memorize some key passages, but also I would just love to be able to memorize the whole entire book and just soak in the book. So add the free gift we gave you last week to the free gift we gave you this week. And we're gonna spend a lot more time in the book of Colossians. And I'm praying that it would be fruitful for you during this season. Uh, but maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me pray. And then we're gonna jump into it this morning. Father, we're here this morning because you exist and you have revealed yourself. You've called us in to worship and enjoy you. You've spoken to us from your word and you have something meaningful to say to us this morning. Father, I'm a little tired and so I ask that you would encourage me, that you would strengthen me, give me endurance this morning, that you would help my mind be in it and my heart be where you want it to be, that you would really think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and very little of me, that you would help us hear what you would have to say to your people this morning. So we settle ourselves, we position ourselves, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts for what you'd have for us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles here <clears throat> or open up your scripture journal to the book of Colossians. And uh, I'm going to start this morning by, you might be wondering right now, really, who cares about this book of Colossians? What good is it to spend seven, did you say seven months? Seven months? I flipped, that's a very thin book. Right? There's only four chapters. How are we going to spend seven months in a four-chapter book? Just hold on, baby. I'll show you, okay? <laughs> Trust me. Right? Now listen, why? Because Colossians, it's a very unique book that gives us a kind of a special and unique perspective of Jesus Christ. I, I, I told the early service today that Colossians is like 100-proof whiskey, okay? You just, you need to take it in little sips, right? And honestly, every verse can get you hammered, so you got to be careful, all right? <laughs> got to be careful with it. We can't do a whole chapter. Crazy people do whole chapters. Let's do a verse or two at a time. So today, we're taking a little sip. It's going to be nice and neat. Serving it up straight. It's coming down hot. We're going to get some Jesus, all right? So that's what we're doing. We're going to take a couple verses every single week, work through it, and we're going to ask God to do something special, get, open our eyes up to, to the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we're, I, I'm praying that it's going to be a special series for us as a church, a timely series for you, your family, your friends, and our city. Now, as I said, and you heard our reader read this morning, we're going to tackle two verses just the introduction. And when we read that introduction, we're going to learn a lot of important details that I'm not going to repeat week in and week out, but they're important for us on the front end to understand as we begin to study this book. Uh, first, we say it's a book, and everybody says that, you know, there's books of the Bible, but in reality, it's not a book. In reality, it is a letter. And, you know, if you're younger than me, let me tell you what a letter is, Okay. A letter is this thing where, in the beginning, people would say, Dear Bob, okay? And then they would write some things, and they would correspond, and then at the end, they would say, Yours 
truly or in love or in, they would have some signature and then they would sign their name at the very end. And that was kind of the, stru- the structure of this thing called a letter. And then you would fold it and then you'd take an envelope and then you would lick it and then you'd put it in the envelope and then you'd put a stamp on it and then you would mail it, all right? That's what you would do with this thing called letter. Well, that actually goes way back. And the, this book is actually a letter to the Colossians. And in the year and culture... When this letter was written, which was sometime between the years 50 AD and 60 AD, it was written in the Roman province of Asia. The common form of letters was a little different than what I just described to you. The author would begin the letter by stating their name, and then they would address the intended recipients with a kind of a formal greeting. And so that's what we see here in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So first question we should ask as we start to look at a new book is who wrote this letter? Well, this is kind of different. Surprisingly, we're, we're told of two authors, Paul is the primary author. We see that right there. And Timothy is what you could call a secondary author. Now, during this time, most letter writing was really short. Think of it as text messaging, right? Nobody likes to get that long text message, right? Well, the same thing back in the day. You didn't have a lot of resources, so most letter writing was really short. Um, it was actually more like text, text messaging because of the, the resources required to write out a letter were kind of sparse, right? These letters were usually written on papyrus, which before it became a hideous font was actually a thick form of paper made from the papyrus plant. So to write a letter back in the day, you would need a papyrus. You would need some papyrus, usually like a roll of it. You would need some ink. You would need a writing tool. And of course, you'd need to be able to read and write, which not everyone could do. You'd also have to write your letter, and then you'd have to hire someone to deliver that letter for you. There was no U.S. Postal Service, right? There were no mailmen. So most letters were actually more like post-it notes, little things scribbled on a little piece of paper and then left for somebody if you, were, you couldn't be there. That's what most letter writing looked like. But occasionally, men like Paul would need to write longer letters, longer correspondence meant to give people detailed instruction that were cities away, that were a lot farther away. And so a common practice was actually to dictate the writing of these letters to a scribe, all right? So dictate, it means one guy's talking, the other guy's writing down and and taking that, that letter. And so that's more than likely how this letter came to be. The apostle Paul is dictating it and Timothy is writing it down and going to deliver it. All right, so there it is. This was written by Paul and Timothy. Let's... Second question we need to ask, well, who are these guys? Who is Paul and Timothy, and why, why do we care? Why should we even listen to them? Well, Paul also went by the name Saul. And Saul was a very famous, leading Jewish intellectual 
at the time. He was a man of intense passion for the Jewish religion and was a a known antagonist to Jesus and the Jesus movement. Paul looked at Jesus the way ISIS looks looks at Americans, okay? That was Paul's um, understanding, outlook about Jesus and Jesus' followers. It's It's not an overstatement at all to say that Paul hated Jesus. And he hated all of those who followed in Jesus' way. So much so that after Jesus was publicly condemned and crucified, Saul asked for legal permission to go from city to city arresting Jesus' followers and imprisoning them or having them killed. Paul was given such permission and was personally present at the killing, the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. You can read about this in Acts chapter 6 and 7. So Saul was this devout Jew. He, As a devout Jew, he knew there is only one God, and Yahweh is his name. That God alone deserved to be worshipped. Uh, anything else was idolatry. So when Jesus taught and said that he was one with God and Jesus claimed that he was the son of God and that people should worship Jesus, Jesus was committing blasphemy. And because of that, Paul thought Jesus deserved a fate worse than death. Now what's worse than death? Well, in that day and age, the worst, worse than death was public crucifixion where you were put up, naked, nailed to a cross, publicly shamed. Everyone walked by you and go, well, obviously that guy was a fool. Well, obviously that guy was a criminal. Well, obviously don't follow that guy. That, look what, that guy was powerless. Look how he ended up, right? That's what crucifixion was meant to do. Completely deter anyone from following you, right? That's how they got rid of rebellions. Different little rebellions would pop up and that's how uh, the Romans would um, quench those rebellions. Just publicly humiliate someone through crucifixion. No one will want to follow them. So if that happened, well, here's an important question that we should consider or we should answer. What would cause a man like Saul, highly educated, one of the smartest guys of his day, right? Many historical scholars believe that Saul was in fact a genius, What would it take for this hardlining, genius Jew to completely switch teams and become the leading Jesus-loving church planter in the first century? That's a big question, right? Like, can you imagine turning on the news and see Joe Biden walking out with an Make America Great hat? (laughs) You would go, what happened this week? What happened? Right? Or vice versa, right? A guy who is completely antagonistic to Jesus all of a sudden becomes the leading church planter and he's a crazy person for Jesus all of a sudden. He's getting thrown into prison all the time. He's getting beaten all the time. He's shipwrecked all the time. He starts doing all kinds of stuff for Jesus and he has this miraculous conversion, 
right? Well, what happened to cause that? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. Paul hints at it in verse 1 of our text. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Okay, so right there we can... We, we get a glimpse of something has happened because in the book of Acts, we start out by hearing Saul, the antagonist, Saul who's anti-Christ. And now Paul is actually an apostle of Christ Jesus. Well, what is an apostle? Well, an apostle, it's not just a title for like a pastor. An apostle's got like very specific requirements and there's actually three requirements to be an apostle. We hear there's only, you know, 12 apostles, right? Well, what, what makes them an apostle? Well, one, to be an apostle, you actually had to be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, okay? You had to be an eyewitness um, of, of, of Jesus. You couldn't just hear about Jesus from a friend or a cousin or somebody had seen him. You actually have to be an eyewitness. Second, you had to receive a commission. So Jesus himself had to say, you are my apostle. Take my message and go where I'm going to tell you to go. So you have to be commissioned to speak for Jesus. And then lastly, you have to be a person who actually did miracles in the name of Jesus. So there's a very small window of what it means to be an apostle. Okay, Eyewitness to Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, and Jesus does miracles through you. So when did this happen for Saul? Because obviously Saul's killing Christians, Saul's antichrist, and now all of a sudden Saul is called an apostle. Well, again, we don't have to guess. We can flip over to the book of Acts chapter 9, and we can read very specifically how Jesus went from an, an antagonist to a Christian church planter. So do that. Flip over in your Bible with me to Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> <clears throat> Verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So here we go. Pre-conversion, right? Saul's a hater, right? Saul is wanting to kill people. He goes to the high priest and asks the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So he's going and asking, write your endorsement. So when I go and kill people or throw Christians in jail, they don't think I'm a psychopath. They actually know the high priest told me that it's okay to do it. So he can have the letter of the high priest and say, see, I'm justified in doing this. Okay, keep reading. So that if he found any belonging to the way, now what's the way? The way is uh, before we were called Christians, before Christianity was called Christianity, it was just called the way. Because it was meant to be uh, not just something you did in your head or something you did in your heart, but actually a path that you followed. Christianity was a person that you followed. It was, I am now embracing Jesus Christ and living the way Jesus Christ lived. I am walking the way. So Paul is going to find anyone who's walking the way, man or woman, and he might bring them bound to Jerusalem, so to throw them in jail. Now, he, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, this is a concerning moment from our, for our brother here, right? Jesus Christ has been dead and buried for about two months, okay? And Saul watched him die. Saul approved of his crucifixion. Saul believed that it was a just condemnation for a heretic and a blasphemer. And Saul is on a crusade to get rid of all of his followers in the name of God, in the name of the one true God. And now all of a sudden, said God shows up and goes, why are you on the wrong team? Saul is having a moment right here, okay? He's having a moment, okay? Keep reading. Saul says, well, who are you, Lord? Saul's like, I thought I'm on the right team. I thought I was on the right team. What are you talking about persecuting you? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, here's what, here's, the, here's what we need to see. I don't want us to spiritualize this too much this morning. This wasn't just like a spiritual experience for Saul. This was more than a spiritual conversion. I want to say it was a cosmological conversion. What do, what do I mean by that? Cosmology is the study of the origins and the makeup of the universe or universes. For Saul, there was creation and there was God, Yahweh, sovereign over all creation. There was heaven and there was earth. But these two realities were very separate. So when Jesus, a man of the earth, born of Mary, Father Joseph grew up in Nazareth. Everyone knew where he came from. When a man claimed to be God, right? This man was crossing a line that according to Saul and according to all Jews cannot be crossed. This is what got Jesus killed. But the book of Acts shows us what happened next. Jesus died and then was resurrected into new life. He was seen by over 500 witnesses. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So he left earth and went to heaven at the right hand of God the Father in exaltation. Now, what did this do? This proved that Jesus was actually God. One, he lived a sinless life. No human man could do that. Two, he beat death. No human man could do that. He wasn't resuscitated. He didn't come back for a day or two or 30 more years. Jesus Christ came back to never die again. He came back in a new type of body, a body that was immortal, that could not die. And then to further prove that he was God, he it was exalted to the right hand of God. Now listen, it's hard for us to get our mind around this. Jesus didn't like float off like he's going to the moon, okay? In a sense, he's basically going, and I'll get, get to this, to a different dimension. So he was lifted up and then poof, gone, all right? To the right hand of God the Father, proving he was actually who he said he was. He was the Son of God. Now, what is going on there? Jesus, the God-man, 
goes to the right hand of God the Father. Well, here's where things get really crazy. I've got a quote from leading New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. This is what he says. It's kind of an extensive quote, so we're going to go, it's a little dense. Let me work through it. Basically, heaven and earth in biblical cosmology are not two different locations within the same continuum of space and matter. Pause, okay? Heaven and earth are not like earth and Pluto, okay? Heaven and earth are two different dimensions of God's good creation, okay? You with me? Tracking with me? Okay, I'm making sure. All right, here we go. Because we're about to use a really big word, okay? First, Heaven relates to earth tangentially so that the one who is in heaven, here it is, can be present simultaneously anywhere and everywhere on earth. The ascension of Jesus therefore means that Jesus is available, accessible, without people having to travel to a particular spot on earth to find him. Okay, point one. When Jesus was ascended to the right hand of God and he's in heaven, heaven works tangentially. What does that mean? If you're in heaven, you can basically be everywhere on earth. You can be wherever you want. So we don't, Christians don't have to go to Mecca. We don't have to go to any holy land. Because the center of our religion, the center of our faith can be present everywhere all the time because he is in heaven right now. Okay, we get it? We can pray. He's here in this gathering. Why? Because he's in heaven. So he can be present with us now. That's cool. That's great. That's good news. But the second point is what I really want to focus in on. Second, heaven is, still on NT, yep. Heaven is, as it were, look, the control room for earth. Think about the control room. You walk into a factory, you've got all of these knobs, you walk into that room and everything you turn inside the control room affects the rest of the building, right? Heaven is the control room of earth. It's what, what happens in heaven dictates what happens on this earth, okay? Look at the other analogy he used. It's the CEO's office. So we know what happens in the CEO's office affects the rest of the organization. The CEO determines what direction the company goes, what salaries are being paid, what company objectives are, what our goals and our vision and our dreams, what businesses we're going to acquire, what acquisitions we're going to take on this quarter. The CEO determines all of that, and then it gets worked out in the rest of the organization. Go back to N.T. Wright. So heaven the control room for earth. It's the CEO's office. It's the place from which instructions are given. Jesus said, all authority is given to me, said Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel, in heaven and on earth. Okay, so now what, what did I mean by Saul had a cosmological conversion? Okay, well, think about this. The guy that he thought was a blasphemer, right, just shows up in front of him. Knocks him off his horse. How, does, how do you do that? Jesus is in the control room, okay? Jesus is the CEO in the CEO's office. And Jesus is issuing orders from his office. Orders that cannot be denied. 
Orders that even if you're an antagonist, even if you're anti-Christian, it doesn't matter because he orders it all. And his predetermined plan determines what happens in the issues of man. So the glorified Jesus Christ goes, Saul, today's your day. Boom, control room right in front of him. Oh, no. Shows up, starts issuing orders, literally knocks him off his horse. Let's keep reading. Go back to Acts chapter 9, verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I love this right here. He doesn't say this. Listen, Saul, if you accept me in your heart and believe in me right now, someday you can go to heaven. It's not what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says. Where am I at? Verse 6. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. This is what he says. Oh, it's me. Yeah, I'll tell you what you do later. I got, I got a plan for your life. Doesn't really matter what you think about it. Go to the city. I'll tell you what you're going to do. What's Paul do? Okay. Right? But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Down in 16, he's like, I'm going to, he tells somebody else. He's like, hey, go, go meet with Paul. I know he was a little scary before, but don't worry, he's on my team now. And I'm going to show him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name. That's what, he tell, that's what he says in verse 16. That's what he tells Ananias. But back up to verse 7. The men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless. <laughs> Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he's blinded in this moment. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Jesus shows up to Saul, boom, light speaks, knocks him off his horse as he's on his way to persecute more Christians. And he converts him. He converts him not just religiously, but cosmologically. Now he realizes it's not just Yahweh up there, but Jesus is in the control room, right? So it was just God and Jesus is somebody else. But now he realizes, no, the guy that we killed, somehow that guy has got into the control room of heaven, right? Completely changes his worldview. He realizes in one swift movement, oh, Jesus is over everything. Jesus is over boss. Jesus is the CEO. Jesus is in the control room of the universe. And from this control room, Jesus says, Paul, persecutor, now you're going to be called Paul the apostle. You are now my eyewitness, miracle working messenger. Take my message, the message of the gospel, the message of the resurrected, glorified Jesus who's in the control room of the universe. Take this message and go tell anybody who I send you to. And there was really only one thing Paul could do. See, Paul was a genius. And if you're, if you're a genius, the one thing that you want in life is to be intellectually consistent. <laughs> And no longer could he persecute Jesus. No longer could he say, could he just dismiss Jesus. He had just had an experience that had to rework some boxes in his mind, rework some categories that he had in his mind. Okay, Jesus was this crazy radical. Well, actually, I need to reorganize that into my thinking. Jesus is actually the son of God. 
So now he says, okay, Lord, I'm going to do what you say to do. You're over everything. You're my king. Whatever you say, I will do. That's what happened to Paul. Now, who's Timothy? Well, I don't have too much time to get into Timothy. Let's just say Timothy was one of Paul's favorite workers. He was a co-worker of the, ministry, of, of the gospel with Paul, and he's one most trusted companion. He calls him in verse 1, a brother. So Paul and Timothy write this letter to the church in the near eastern city of Colossae, Turkey. Okay, that's modern-day Turkey. And at this time, it was rather insignificant city. Paul had actually never even visited it, okay? Now, you know that just, the, like, the Pope never comes to Davenport, right? Just doesn't happen, right? We're, we're a little backwater, right? We're a little off the beaten path. Most of you are probably here by way of accident or you were born here by the way, providence of God. Very few of us are saying things like in college, you know, I'm either gonna go to Chicago or, I don't know, LA or like Davenport, I think, right? Now, we're a little off the beaten path. Well, so was Colossae. At this time, this is the worst thing that could happen for a city. Colossae at one time was actually a thriving cultural center, but the, the, the major thoroughfare, the major road that went through it got bumped up 10 miles north of Colossae. And so now all the major traffic just went around them. So they kind of just fell in disrepute. So much so that even today, so there, modern archaeologists have uncovered Ephesus and, I mean, just all kind of stuff in Ephesus, Ephesus. Very interesting. But Colossae is still yet, it's barely been touched. They've literally just brushed the dust off of the surface in Colossae. Um, and so that, it's kind of a rather insignificant city. Now, so Paul never even goes there. So who, how do they get a church in Colossae if Paul never went there? Well, a guy named Epaphras, we learn about him in verse 7. A guy named Epaphras was somewhere Paul was preaching, heard Paul preach the gospel, got saved, and he went to Paul and he said, Paul, what should I do now? And Paul said, you know what, bro? Now I want you to go back to your hometown of Colossae and I want you to preach the gospel there. Epaphras goes back, Colossae starts preaching the gospel, disciples start being made, converts start being made. Now they've got a little missional community. That's a church. This church starts gathering together. And now we've got a church in Colossae. But this was a very young church. And Colossae was full of kind of rival religions. We've known by the, the little bit of archaeological work that's been done, and we found a lot of coins and such, that they, they worshipped all the Roman gods. The, the coins have the Roman gods on them. They worshipped mysterious, they call mystery cults, so very kind of occultic. But they, there was also a strong Jewish presence there in the city as well. So this is what I want you to kind of feel. As this new church, this new missional, one missional community in a city, Okay? One missional community in this kind of backwater city, and there's kind of rival pressures on this new church. I'm going to say it like this to make, help us understand. From the left and from the right. From the left, the mystery cults and the Roman gods. It's kind of like the spiritual but not religious folks, the highly sexualized and uh, all kind of just cultic practices that were normal in that day. And then you've got the religious hardliners, the right, the Jewish, the ones that have the rules, the ones that have the law of God, the ones that worship only on Saturday, the ones that tell you what you can eat and what you can drink and when you can eat and when you can drink and how long you can have your hair and all of these different things. And this the gospel comes to the city and this people believe and God saves people. And now all of a sudden there's this pressure from the, from the left and from the right. Now what's the pressure? The pressure is this. When you're trying to survive in a city and you, what do we want as a city? We want to grow, right? We want to grow our missional community. 
So one of the things that you're feeling, the pressure there is you're wanting to align yourself with somebody. Because if I just, you know, if I accept a, a few things on the left, maybe these people will come in and help my missional community grow. And if I accept some things on the right, maybe these people will come in and help my missional community grow. And so this young church, which was almost all new believers, are being pressured from the right and the left. Listen, here it is. To cave in just a little bit. Just a little bit. Like, we, okay, we know Jesus is God. We know Jesus is God. But so is the Roman pantheon. So let's just accept Jesus and worship the Roman gods. You don't have to get rid of all the Roman gods. But in this culture, Christians were actually called atheists because they, they believed all those other gods were false and they only believed that Jesus was God. So it was kind of like, all right, Jesus plus the Roman gods. Can't, can't we worship that way? Or Jesus plus sexual promiscuity because we want to worship God with our body, right? That's kind of what they're getting from the left or from the right. All right, we'll accept Jesus, but you know, Jesus was actually a really good Jew. So we should probably accept Jesus and the Jewish laws of circumcision and the Jewish 10 commandments and all the, the ways of God. We should, we should do Jesus plus a little bit of rules, now, the reality is, and then also in this day and age, just like in our day and age, they were racially and socially stratify, stratified. So you had the elites and you had the poor, and they did not coexist. They did not uh, mingle together. So let's just, all right, you can have your Jesus, but let's do Jesus for the rich people, and let's do Jesus for the poor people. Let's not intermingle those. And the reality is, if you take Jesus plus anything, you get something different, what we call a folk religion. A folk religion is when you have the, the founder of your religion gives you a basic set of truths and you take those, but then you add something from your culture into that bucket, right? That becomes something different, folk religion. So here we have, we have Epaphras who's planted this new church in this town. He's got pressure from the right, pressure from the left, and he's preaching the gospel and he happens to get thrown in jail. Now, it's so funny. It's not really a coincidence. If you get thrown in jail, you're highly likely to meet Paul there, okay? Because Paul was always in prison, and that's why we don't know when this was written. We don't know. We know it was written in jail, but Paul was put in jail so many times, we don't know which jail cell he was in at the time this was written, okay? Most scholars think it was either uh, at uh, Ephesus or Rome. So Epaphras you know, he gets thrown in a slammer. He walks in, Paul, his, his mentor is there. And Paul, as a good pastor, as a good mentor, looks at Epaphras and goes, brother, tell me about the work of God in Colossae. Tell me about the work. And Epaphras, like a good church planter, just vomits it up. It's really hard. It's really difficult. Pressure from the right, pressure from the left. We've got all kind of crazy going on. We've got a guy coming on Sunday, says he's a Christian, but he's sleeping with this person. We've got a gal coming on Sunday, but she wants to go on Saturday. She wants to go to the Jewish, the Jewish festival. And then on Sunday, she wants to be a Christian. So it's kind of Jesus plus that, and it's Jesus plus this. It's cray cray up in here, Paul. And so Paul gets Timothy, says, all right, Timothy, write this down. And so Paul, as the apostle, is writing to his kind of, it's like a granddaughter church, because he didn't even plan it, it's his granddaughter church, and he's going to write this letter to straighten out their faith and conduct, to fix their belief, to bring them back to orthodoxy, and to keep them from falling into the traps of the right or the left. 
So we might ask, well, why should we study this letter? What's the point? Old, timey, 2,000-year-old letter. Why should we study this thing? Well, from my perspective, I feel like we are in a very similar situation as these folks in Colossae. We're a smaller town, right? We're off the beaten path a little bit. Like I said earlier, most of us didn't like plan out coming to here. We didn't look at a, a map of the United States and you know, zero in on Davenport and say, that's where I want to be. God led us here through the, his providence to get us right where we are, right? Not only that, but we also are a city full of a lot of different religions or different spiritualities mixing around. You, we've got really all the religions across the spectrum. Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim. Uh, we've got Jehovah's Witness. We've got Mormons. We've got all over the spectrum. And not only that, probably what I think is the number one. So you guys know that from a study that came out last year, we are the 15th most post-Christian city in the United States. We're 15th. San Francisco is 17th, just to let you know. So we're more post-Christian. But most of the people you meet, when you share something about Jesus or you mention Jesus or you say you're a Christian, most of the people you meet are like kind of Christian. They like, that's kind of how they describe themselves. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's a folk Christianity. It's a Jesus plus something. It's Jesus plus Republican. It's Jesus plus Democrat. It's Jesus plus their, shirt, their, their specific shade of moralism. So Jesus plus teetotaler, if you know what that is, means they don't drink alcohol at all. Or it's Jesus plus, their skirt's got to be a little bit longer than right here, right? Or it's Jesus plus whatever. One of the famous, one of the most popular in our city is Jesus plus individualism. And this certain form of Christianity is just about me and Jesus. So all I have to do is listen to a podcast one Sunday and have my personal devotion with the Lord and open up my app and read my little app and it's just me and Jesus and I never have to go to church. I never have to be a part of a body. I never have to serve or sacrifice or give financially. It's just me and Jesus. The problem with that is it's folk Christianity. <laughs> When Christianity gets mixed with something else, it becomes a folk religion and loses its soul. It loses its essence, its power. Folk religion doesn't change anybody. It just makes you a little bit different. You're basically just a normal American with Jesus added in on the side. See, when this happens, Christianity just becomes an accessory to your life. It's like this. Here's the cosmology behind it. You are at the center of your world and everything else revolves around you. And so you've got all your preferences. You've got your favorite football team. You've got your favorite coffee shops. You've got your favorite vacation spots. You've got your Republican or Democrat or Libertarian. And then in all of these preferences that make up your kind of identity, one of those is Jesus. And Jesus happens to quaintly just revolve around you and he never tells you, stop it. Or he never tells you, go there. Or he never tells you to do hard things and grow up. Conveniently, all this Jesus does is pet your face and tell you how cute you are. 
Now, the problem with that is Jesus isn't someone you can just add to your life and go on as usual. Look what Jesus did to Saul Paul's life. Right? That's the kind of impact the real Jesus makes. When the real resurrected, glorified Jesus, every time he shows up, you know what people do? They don't go, oh, hold on. Um, I got something in the oven. They don't, they don't go, oh, wait, wait. Hold on. My show's on. 23 minutes later, we'll talk. When Jesus shows up, boom, they hit the ground. Because the glory of God comes with Jesus Christ and he's more real than they are and he'll light their face on fire with his eyes if he needs to, right? So what does he do? Boom, they go down to the ground. Why? Because that's who Jesus really is. He has that kind of weight, that kind of power, that kind of glory. See, we need a Jesus big enough to change our cosmology because that's the real Jesus, Jesus right now is in the control room of heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, choosing people to awaken to his love and plan. And he's inviting them in to the greatest news in all the universe, the gospel. He's telling them, you can be forgiven like Saul. You can be changed like Saul. You can walk with God like Saul. You can know a new spiritual intimacy with your creator that was never available before. And it's all because of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, you might be saying, ooh, Justin, I don't know about that. You sure are stretching out this introduction, aren't you? Where do you see that in those verses, Justin? Well, it's there. You just got to know what to look for. You got to know the code words of Paul the Apostle. If you're you're a kid, when I was a kid, sometimes there's little things give you special glasses that'll help you see the code words. I'll give you some gospel glasses to help you see some code words this morning. Look at verse 2. To the saints... And faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Well, let me ask you this real quick quiz, pop quiz. Where are the people that Paul is writing to? Okay. I think it's a, you're like, what? Is this a trick question? Is this a trick question? Well, actually, it is a trick question. Is that the only place they're at? See, here's what we need to see. Paul wasn't the only one who had a cosmological conversion. These believers did too. Look at verse two. Again, help you see it with gospel eyes this time. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Where are they at? In Christ. At Colossae. That, those two words, in Christ, are some of Paul's favorite gospel code words. Now, what does that mean to be in Christ? Well, we are in America, and part of what it means to be in America is to be in a representative democracy. And what that means is we elect officials to make decisions for us, right? Senators and governors, all the way up to the president of the United States. So when the president goes in and he makes a decision, we are making a decision with him. He is making the decision for us, but we're in that. Now, you, I know you might not like Donald Trump, and you might hate him, and you might say, that's not my president. Well, it is your president. You're in a representative democracy. If you're an American, we've got one president. Wait a few years, could be another one, whatever, right? But he's making the decision for us. Now, here's what I want you to see. 
He makes the decision, right? But it affects us, okay? When Paul uses this word in Christ, he's talking about the same thing. Jesus is our representative and we are in him and he is in us. And when he does things, we do them in him. So Paul writes, we, are, we were crucified with Jesus. When Jesus died, we died. We are buried with Jesus. When Jesus was buried, we were buried. Our old life, dead and gone. Here we go. Jesus was raised. When Jesus was raised, we were raised with Christ. Now, this is not talking about in the future, just in the future, when Christ comes back again and we're going to get raised. He's talking about a real reality right now. We've been raised with Christ spiritually. Then he goes on to say in Ephesians, we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Jesus, everything Jesus did, we've done because we are counted in him by faith. So Jesus lived a perfect life. Guess what? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've lived a perfect life. Jesus died. Guess what? For the weight of sin, the weight of our sin. Jesus died. If you put your faith in him, you've already died. You've already paid the penalty for your sin. When Christ died, he was buried. You've been buried. He was resurrected. You've been resurrected to new life. He's ascended to the right hand of God. What does that mean? That means you're there with him in the control room of heaven. What? Jesus' victory is our victory. Jesus' ascension is our century. Ascension. Jesus came all the way down out of heaven to bring us all the way back up into heaven with him. And so for the Christian, we don't just experience good things on earth. We experience whiffs of heaven. When we see a sunrise, we don't go, oh, chemicals are doing things. We say, that's a foretaste of glory. My God did that. Yeah. Every day in heaven's going to look like that. When we feel love, that's a foretaste of glory. When we cut into something delicious and it goes into our mouth and all oh, this is reminding me of the feast that is to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven breaks into the real everyday world every day for the Christian if we've got the eyes to see it. Because we're in Christ in the control room of heaven. Woo! All right, one more long quote from our brother N.T. Wright. Part of getting used to living in the post-Easter world, post-resurrection, like, part of getting used to letting Easter change your life, your attitudes, your thinking, your behavior, is getting used to the cosmology that is now unveiled. Heaven and earth, I repeat, are made for each other. And at certain points, they intersect and interlock. Jesus is the ultimate such point. But we as Christians are meant to be such points derived from him. The spirit, the sacraments, and the scriptures are given. Look at this. So the double life of Jesus, both heavenly and earthly, can become ours as well. Already in the present. Listen, Christianity is not about going to heaven when you die. It's about knowing God and experiencing the reality of heaven now. Now, listen, not like in an, it's going to be in the future, not perfectly, 
We could call that, that's called, if you think heaven can come to earth right now and it could be heaven, that's called an overrealized eschatology. That's never going to happen until Christ comes back. But we can, God can kind of open the windows of heaven and kind of, we get to glimpse into it. And we experience, that's what I said earlier, it's kind of like a, a whiff of heaven. Like you walk into the house and you might not see what's being cooked, but you can smell it. Right? It's in the vicinity. You walk into missional communities sometimes and you get a scent of heaven when you see grace, when you experience forgiveness, when you see someone repent of their sin, when you see somebody help someone out who's poor and broken and you, they meet their needs. What's going on there? You're getting a whiff of heaven. And this is a reality for us as Christians because Jesus is in the control room of heaven. Now listen, you're never going to experience this if you are at the center of your world and Jesus is just in your periphery. Because that Jesus that you've got neatly and quietly on the edges of your life, that Jesus is not the real Jesus. Jesus will never be an accessory. He's not arm candy for you. Never. When the real Jesus shows up, you bow down. You begin to orbit around him. And so this morning, that's the, the opportunity is here for you, like Saul, to have your cosmology shifted because Jesus is over everything. And so I pray this today that you would turn and embrace and believe that Jesus by faith and have your sins forgiven and have your soul washed and have your soul opened up to the realities of heaven. Even as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, something special. Jesus is meeting us here in the bread and in the cup. A portal to heaven is opening. I pray that you would eat it in faith. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you that we are counted in Christ, that we are seated with Jesus in heavenly places right now. And it's not because of our goodness. It's not because of our intellect. It's not because of our morality. It's because and only because Jesus Christ did what we could not do, lived the perfect life and died a substitutionary death and, and resurrected and ascended and then chose us and revealed himself to us. Thank you, Jesus, for that gift of grace. We love you. We bow before you. We want to serve you all our days. Would you meet us here now as you promised to in the Lord's Supper? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.